0: back to another gracious episode of Mask Off. Thank you, everyone, for all the love on the first episode. Um, keep listening to it if you haven't had a chance. A wonderful, great interview, just like the one that's coming up on this episode. Um, before we get started, welcome back to uh, one of the beginning segments of news that you might have missed. Um, First, I definitely want to bring up something that I know a lot of us did not miss, and that is the murders that took place in Atlanta, Georgia this past week uh, at several of the different spa and massage parlors um, where um, eight women were killed, um, most of them of... of Asian or Asian American background. Um, It was very much racially motivated regardless of how the news and the media would like us to think otherwise. Um, I think it's one of those moments of showing compassion and solidarity of understanding that um, we need to show up, we need to be present and we need to know about what was going on and justice needs to be served in some type of way and uh, Just also paying attention to the fact that racism against Asian Americans, um, folks who are Asian, of Asian ethnicity, who are in the country very much face struggle and being privy and being knowledgeable to that, even uh, myself having to Open up and be not only aware, because I definitely was, but uh, just how prevalent it's been, especially over the last year of 2020. um, One of the resources that I want to plug is a a website by the name of of, uh, a virtual tracking organization, Stop AAPI Hate. Um, And uh, they have been tracking a lot of the violent uh, as well as casual hate, if there ever could be a word, Uh, violent and nonviolent, we'll say that, um, hate crimes that have been taking place against Asian Americans. And and, uh, the numbers are actually quite shocking at the roundabout of 2020 ending in December, only tracking from March, which would be around the entire time of the shutdown uh, of the first year of the pandemic. Uh, well over 3,000 racially motivated attacks, events, or even just like verbal abuses in the street took place uh, against Asian Americans. And so just that just goes to show just like only in the span of not even a full year, only at most of a couple months, um, how prevalent this is and how aware we need to be in support and solidarity for the community um, and how that needs to show up right now. And so I highly recommend everyone check out Stop AAPI um, as it's not only informational, but also it gives you, it does provide resources on things that you are able to do to support the community in terms of right now, whether that be donating money to the families involved who lost loved ones or being able to um, help and donate money to uh, protest and bail funds for the protesters that will be protesting the um the trial and the various different um legal entity legal matters that are taking place excuse me um so in some ways some capacity don't be silent show your support and make sure you're stepping up i know that i will be doing so and i encourage all my listeners to do so do so as well um and educate yourselves Um, With that being said, I also want to make sure that I touch on a couple of news stories that probably have fallen a little bit below the surface, and I don't want anyone to forget about them. Um, One of them specifically is, uh, you know I love uh, women's basketball, specifically... just the WNBA, as well as uh, college women's basketball, and that's sort of where our first story takes us. So, over this past week, and I believe uh, maybe like later in the later half of the week, um, uh, Coach Don Staley, who is the current head coach at the University of South Carolina for the women's basketball team, she released a public statement on Twitter, and it sort of just flooded the internet um, all over the place. Talking about the inequitable treatment that women's basketball was sort of facing in midst of the NCAA's March Madness. Um so for those that are unfamiliar, March Madness is that wonderful controversial time of the year where all college teams from every um major Division One uh school and team sort of come together based off of their leagues. Um and just go at it all the way down into the final four, the final two, and uh, take away the trophy at the NCAA championship uh, tournament. And so one of the things that Coach Staley sort of brings up in her statement is the inequitable treatment of women's basketball teams, specifically pointing out um, the official tagline of the NCAA's Twitter um, as in, as a major indicator which read the official NCAA March Madness destination for all things Division one NCAA men's basketball which in that end of itself tells a very very large message that March Madness but also college basketball and we can be honest end up the nba uh and the the, M- the wnba have a very like large issue when it comes to like gender and uh, supporting uh, women's sports and making sure that the women are treated and have as much resources as their male counterparts and so of course there are the rumors that have been going on for years or just like the these comments of like well women's basketball isn't as entertaining or like it's not as challenging and like all of these other things but that at the end of the day is not true actually women's basketball is very much growing in popularity showing a pretty large increase in not only just like viewership but also major marketing and stock development so in a People love to watch women play basketball. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. I know I do. I know it's an increasing thing. And then also, it's hard to say that people don't enjoy watching women's basketball if there's not an equitable chance to give them as much viewership and, and autonomy as, the re- as their male counterparts. And so Coach Staley just points out that, like, another reason that... Even though the NCAA women's basketball teams are also competing in March Madness, they are also putting in just as so much work, hours, training. Um, they aren't viewed as well, or and given the type of support that they need, but both from a viewership and like an a- actual support status, but also from a financial means. Um, As regarding the NCAA, March Madness is their most um, paid out event, usually paid out at around $900 million, and then it's divvied among the schools that participate in the tournament. and then uh, the winners, to the winner go the spoils, obviously, which is then divided up over a course of years. Um, and a lot of institutions try to use a, a good chunk of that money. One, it's not only good as far as prestige, but it's also good in terms of, like, really developing basketball programs, investing in resources. Um, and pretty much all of that money really goes to the males teams, uh, the men's teams. And not a lot, barely to any of that money, goes to any of the women's team, despite how they are also equally putting in work and driving viewership for March Madness. And so another reason that struggles are still happening, movements for equity are still happening, um, and don't let this be lost in the conversation either, uh, because the basketball, as well as all the sports arenas, are one of the many areas that a lot of women are still fighting for that equity in the, the same amount of work that they're putting in. Second story um, that I want to leave this off with is um that's probably under the radar is the trial of Derek Chauvin. So Derek Chauvin is the man who kneeled um, on George Floyd and ultimately killed him. Um, not long after that, he longer than we would have liked, but not long after that, he was arrested, uh, fired from his position, and he's been awaiting trial ever since. Um, as many of us know, that was going into over a year ago, and so now trial has officially begun. He's brought up on the charges of second-degree and third-degree murder. Um, Right now, the trial officially began um, this previous Tuesday, um, so coming up on a week ago. And uh, starting on the 29th, that's when opening statements are being made, but they are still in the midst of selecting jurors. So the issue that I have with this particular um, current status of the trial is that Their selection of jurors is that they're trying to find someone who can be, as many people as possible, who can be completely impartial to the fact that Derek Chauvin might be innocent. I, yes, yeah, y'all are probably thinking the same thing I am, which is really hard to be impartial about, because they're trying to use, again, the angle that race was not involved, he was simply following orders, Um, this idea that George Floyd might have also been intoxicated and or under the influence of drugs, which um, is the reason for the action that was taking place, but we all know that violence as well as death shouldn't be the outcome of the situation, regardless of if he was influenced by drugs or not, so Just another thing to make sure that you're tuning into um, and making sure that you're watching currently uh, just because in the state of the pandemic and the coronavirus not a lot of people will be able to physically be in the courthouse so it will be live streamed and uh, obviously lawyers and immediate family uh Mr. Floyd and uh, immediate family. Uh, Derek Chauvin will be in the vicinity, but that is about it. Uh, currently, they are I think they have selected 13 jurors um, of, as of the last update that I checked, and they're hoping to get 15. Um, it's somewhat diverse I guess you consider. Um, I'm not sure of the breakdown so I will not try to say it here but make sure that you're tuning in watching that. Um, Currently it's going to be streamed as soon as opening statements start on the 29th um, through the New York Times website as well as very other local media and news websites as well Um, and honestly it's just another moment of everyone holding their breath and trying to figure out will justice actually be served? What does that justice look like? And How do we go for it? So make sure you're watching. Alright, so thank you for tuning in for news that you might have missed. We're going to we're going to move right along to a wonderful interview that we have lined up for me. It's a great opportunity to sit down with an old college friend of mine by the name of Chima and hear about the wonderful work that he's been doing with his shoe apparel company, uh, grind city kicks in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, the home state uh, and the home city. So very excited to see and hear about all the progress he's been making, but as well, his journey of finding his purpose um, as he pursues his degree in mental health counseling. So stay tuned. Alrighty, alrighty. Welcome back, folks, to Mask Off for another episode. Here with me today, I have a Old college friend of mine, uh, and pretty pretty dope guy, Chima, and he's gonna talk to us a little bit about a lot of the fantastic and awesome work that he's doing currently in Memphis and a lot of things that he's working on. Um, but Chima, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the the people a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so just a little bit about me. I always tell people my purpose in life is to help and impact individuals and families and others and in, in the society. So. And then, and it was crazy, like I was telling Deshaun earlier, all the stuff I'm doing now in the last four to five years, I had no idea I was going to be doing. Um, when I was in college or in high school and stuff like that, I had no idea I was going to um, get into mental health, get into counseling, no idea I was going to um, run a business called Grind City Kicks, no idea I was going to start a nonprofit or even become a motivational speaker. So um, it's, it's just... I don't even know the word to describe that kind of feeling, but I'm very grateful. I'm very thankful um, having great support, having people that you know encourage me, motivate me to do different things. But just a guy from Memphis. Um, I always tell everybody, especially when I speak, just regular, guy, just a regular guy. I wasn't the smartest in the class. Um, I mean, I was athletic, but I didn't go into sports or anything like that in terms of like college or professional just a regular guy that just knew what he wanted to do and had faith in God. And it's just, this is where it's taken me. So, yeah.
0: Hmm. Beautiful. We, we love to hear it. Um, let's start a little bit a little bit about, um, you mentioned like mental health counseling. And I know that when we were talking earlier, uh, off the record, you were kind of like, that's where you're trying to get your master's in right now. Um, why mental health counseling, what sort of puts you into that, into that realm?
1: Um, so for me, um, just to be transparent. Uh, growing up, I felt different things in terms of mental health, t- depression, anger management, anxiety, all that stuff. But I didn't know what it was called. Uh, I didn't know, I had no idea what this was called until I got to college and started learning about psychology and stuff. And for me, is that was the only profession that I saw in myself that I can use to help other people in terms of their daily challenges, struggles, and stuff that they go through and overcome on a daily basis. So I figured going into the counseling world will give me an opportunity to to meet those people's needs that I probably wouldn't be able to do any other way, at least in the professional sense. So mental health. So what's crazy is a quick story. Um, I was a pre-med in UT at first, on my way out because my GPA was low. (sighs) (sighs) I remember that pre-med life. You were not alone. (laughs) GPA was low. That was on dropout and everything. And one day it hit me. I was talking to my um this group of students that were studying organic chemistry and I was like, this right here, I like the Lewis structure and all these molecular bonds and stuff, no. It's not for me. Like this is not realistic. I can't get in tune with this. This doesn't it's not I something I can't see, I can't understand. And I was asking them, I said, look, if the financial stability and, you know, the big DR wasn't in front of your name and all the other stuff, would y'all still become a medical doctor? And all of them had great stories. Came back to me, they were like, I was like, no, I'm not. I will not even be in the medical profession. I didn't care about this. So they didn't say, what would you want to do? I literally said this and didn't even think about it, just off the top. So like, I just want to help people. I just want to help people get over their their daily struggles and stuff like that. And then somebody was like, well, why not become a therapist? I sat there for 30 seconds and boom, from then on out, I switched my major to psychology because I was the closest major in the bachelor's setting to get to the counseling world. Switched my major and then I graduated within four years and I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It just makes sense. So um, now I'm about to finish. I finished all my master's classes, just had to do an internship. I get my master's degree, become a, a clinical mental health counselor. And then after that, I get the PhD in psychology and then just keep working, just keep uh, working in that field and helping everybody else in terms of the mental side of things. So Woo.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah. bless up that we loved it. We love to hear it. Um, are you currently, I don't think we have talked about, are you currently like actively practicing like mental health counseling? Like do you do like sessions
1: and different things like that? I do, but I have to do it supervised because I don't, I don't have a license and I don't have my degree yet. So I right now I'm um, doing counseling with kids and stuff like that.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that um uh, something that you said like really like resonated and sort of like jumped out for me um so i've been exploring therapy like recently um because i feel like that's something uh i remember during a session my therapist was talking about like everybody wants to talk about childhood but like that's not where we started (laughs) um and she was like Well, tell me about your childhood what was your childhood like Um, and I was just like I don't know I felt like I was really frustrated a lot when I was a kid Um, and and, like I was because I I think about like the area of Memphis that I grew up in and like you know it was it was great like looking back on it because like it was just like my family was there I was raised around family but also like the immediate like environment I think about like just now looking back on it like how much poverty and different things like that was um For you, I guess, like thinking about your childhood and different things like that, I think like what, can like knowing how older, older and much older and stuff that you are now, like, are there moments that you can look back in your childhood and you're like able to like understand and contextualize like the emotions and different things that you were feeling?
1: So that's crazy. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day just about that and how you know, quote unquote, and I don't know if this happens in other cities. A lot of people say. I don't want to go back to Memphis. I don't care about Memphis. I want to move. I want to get far away and all that stuff. And I was just like that. First of all, I never thought I was going to come back to Memphis at all. Um, I, but I see, this, this is where I like psychology and the mental health world. Because as an adult and learning more about my profession, I realized the only reason I was saying that is because, like, the experiences i felt in Memphis. It had nothing to do with necessarily the city of Memphis. It was just Memphis for me was like – a bad experience, and I was just trying to get away from a bad experience rather than just the city of Memphis, so for me, as a child and as an adult, I see it being here since twenty seventeen coming back from college is a, I see it in a different light um Memphis is growing Memphis is doing way better it's trying to compete with the the bigger cities um there's a lot coming to Memphis in the next five to ten years. And I appreciate it. So now from somebody that didn't want to come back, that didn't care about it to being now one of the like biggest advocates in our generation to be like, Hey, especially the ones that are from Memphis, get what you need out in these other States and other cities and come back home and grow the city. Because I always tell people we complain about the way Memphis is, but you keep taking talents to these other cities like Nashville, Atlanta and DC and all these other areas in Texas. But you're just providing more talent for them. These are Memphis natives providing talent for all these other cities. If we do the right. same thing for our city, I'm sure we can compete with those cities that people keep moving to. So that's crazy how like I'm thinking about that now. I literally did not care to come back to Memphis, but just God had other things for me, and now I'm telling everybody to come back.
0: I respect that. I love that. I think I definitely was in that camp, too, of like, no, I'm never going to come back to Memphis, especially like for me... I I love how you put it of like experiences, because for me, I always tell people that Memphis stopped feeling like home for me after my grandmother passed away. Um, because like, I have like good relationships, like with my parents, like I love my mom. I love my dad, he get on my nerves sometimes, but I love him. Um, but like my grandma was like my real like holding place there. And then like, when she was gone, I was just like, I don't really feel like a need to come back here and like do anything. But now that I'm like getting older, I'm just like, I think about all the experiences and different things like that that shaped me growing up. And I was like, I don't want more people to keep experiencing that. So I don't know if I'll end back up in Memphis anytime soon. Uh, My girlfriend is so so about it. She was like, because I took her to Memphis one time and she was like, I don't know if I like it here. And I'm just like, you're from Florida. You don't know. (laughs) You don't know how great it is.
1: Different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. um, Bright lights. They got all. Good weather. I mean, it's a whole different ball. But one thing about it is that southern hospitality in Memphis and that barbecue and that food, soul food, and all this. Oof. The music. It, Memphis has its own culture that as a lot of cities and a lot of states can't get. It's it's its own identity. So I do appreciate Memphis for what it is.
0: I I agree. I like I I defend Memphis like wholly and fully. To like all, especially like when I was in grad school, I had a bunch of other people that were. Um, also from the South, from different areas, like Mississippi and uh, North Carolina, a couple of folks from like Georgia slash the Atlanta area. And I was just like, yeah, y'all are cool, but like y'all don't know nothing about Memphis. Like they, they would get like real deal mad. Like when I'd be like, oh, like, like what's Memphis known for and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, we have like the best barbecue like in the world. And they were like better than like North Carolina barbecue or South Carolina barbecue. I was like, that's not barbecue. What we do is barbecue. <laughs> uh, But I'm curious uh, to learn uh, as much as you're willing to share, like obviously, I'm curious to learn from you what your experience, like growing up in Memphis, was kind of like. And um, because one of the things that I started the podcast for is like obviously being able to talk to black men about their experiences, like their and life and different things like that. So I would love to learn just a little bit more about what your childhood was like growing up in Memphis and then like how you think that overlaps with you coming to terms uh or eventually like realizing that yes you are a black man and like your lived experience is different
1: yeah um honestly um uh how I put it so i was sheltered as a child um like, thankfully my family and my dad like he we i actually I was born in whitehaven and we moved out of whitehaven before i was in first grade um so you know, thankfully, I didn't get to experience some of the things that other people get got to experience because we moved out to the suburbs and stuff like that. But in terms of my personal experience, um, okay, so Memphis is great, right? But as a kid that has a different name than everybody else that you can't pronounce like I, that was that was a little rough like you know right kids, right kids, man they're ruthless they're, they, they, they are they are they <laughs> are memphis kids don't i don't know if this happens in other cities but memphis kids don't play i got in a lot of fights um i was bullied but one of the things that when i was growing up like in middle school and like later in elementary school i started getting a lot of fights because i would let people know like hey the begin the first day of school. The beginning of the school, I would get in the fight just to make sure that you're not gonna pick up. Like I want people to know, don't mess with him. I used to get on fight. Right, to get on right. Bus, it from school. You would never know unless I tell you this. But it had nothing to do with me being a bachelor. I was an A student uh, At public school. I was I was an honor roll and all that stuff. But it was the experience it was the bad experience I was gotten from my peers and stuff like that. That I had to always defend myself and then. I didn't look like this. My teeth was messed up. I was a fat kid like the jokes was coming in and out. And I think right, that right. Was, the glow up hadn't happened yet. Right, right. <laughs> and I think that was one of the reasons why like again it, it, I didn't want to come back to Memphis cuz that was the experience I always remembered. And then when I went to private school my grades started to drop and I was struggling Played football, was great at football, but had to be taken out because of my grades. And I was like, man, the whole world is coming to an end. Like, there's no positivity anywhere. Left, right, couldn't see. Um, So I was like, man, I don't even care. I didn't even care to go to college. Do you know the reason why I went to college? The reason why I went to college is that was my only way out of Memphis. The only reason I didn't go, I wouldn't go to California, the furthest west that you can go. Probably besides, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) But the only reason I didn't go is because of uh, financial situations. Like, I got to get that HOPE scholarship. <laughs> I got to get that in-state tuition. So I went to the right. furthest uh, east in Tennessee, and that was UT Knox And I didn't like UT at first. I didn't care for the color orange. I was always blue. Um, and for people that didn't know, Tiger's blues. why, I, you know. So I didn't care <laughs> for the color orange. But when I went to UT, it was like, man, I feel better. Like, I feel in a new space. I, Like, this is new for me. I have new friends, all that stuff. So that was my experience um, in Memphis. So, but then as I came back as an adult, obviously I see a different side. I look different. The glow up has happened. The mental (laughs) state are more stable. So now I look at it from a different perspective. So it's cool. Right, right.
0: I'm curious for you um, what that sort of transition was like for you going from Memphis to Knoxville um, and sort of what that looked like for you. Because I remember for me, having grown up in Memphis and then like, of course I had like traveled around a lot. Um, but like, I got to like Knoxville and I was like, damn, like there's a lot of white people, like a lot more than I'm like used to. Um, and so I'd love to hear like, if what that transition was like for you and what
1: that impact kind of was like. Well, for me, um, I went to NUS. I don't know if you know that.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, MUS was predominantly white. Um, so it didn't. There was not really much of a change in terms of UT. Um, now, what's crazy is I didn't know not the city of Knoxville even existed until I went to the school, which like and Same. looking back at it, I like people say, like, "Well, how you not know? Why you not?" I thought I was a pretty decent, like academically smart kid. And for me not to know, and I know there's a lot of people that don't know that there's a city of Knoxville. Like I, I just knew there was a UT. I just didn't know where it was. <laughs> I knew it was right. in the state of Tennessee. I didn't know it was in Knoxville. <laughs> but um, my experience in Knoxville or UT, um, I don't know. It was, it was, yes, it was a lot of, you know, white people, or ca- Caucasian people, but I was always in the black community. Uh, I still, you know, did stuff with the other uh, races and stuff like that, participated in uh, organizations and different things like that. But I was still heavily in the, the black community in terms of the school. So I got, I guess, the best of both sides, I guess you can say.
0: I got you. I got you. Um, pivoting just like a little bit. I'm curious to learn for you. Um both like as you've like progressed and gotten older and then now this journey with like mental health counseling as far as like a degree. Um, I feel like a conversation that I've started having a lot more is like what is this what's this idea of like masculinity and how is masculinity sort of like apply to me? Um, because I feel like I've had to be schooled like a couple of times and tried to like especially about when it comes to like women and like black women especially, I'm just like, oh like I don't I don't know, I don't know as much as I thought I did, or I'm not supporting like I thought I did. I guess for you, like, what is um, what does masculinity sort of mean to you, and what does that journey of like figuring out what it means to be a man look like for you?
1: Oh, that's a that's an interesting. I've never been asked that question before. Um, <laughs> Take time if you need some. <laughs> what is masculinity? Um. uh okay. Let me let me say my personal belief because I think everybody has their own way of thinking of what masculinity. I think for me, masculinity is. Um, being able to support, provide for your family, um, you know, be the protector, be the one that, you know, the leader the your family looks up to or your siblings or your friends or whatever the case may be. Um, but at the same time, and that doesn't always have to be financially. People need to understand, like, just be... So we always have the conversation of what if your wife makes more than you or this, that, and, uh, and the other. That doesn't matter because at the end of the day if you're providing you're protecting and you're being the head of the household that is what that is your sole job like your your job is not always to provide the most money your job is to just be seen as the leader the dominant one the one that can take care of everything whether it's your kids your wife your family your cousins your siblings or whatever case is that is in my eyes what masculinity is now um I'm trying to see if I covered every basis of masculinity Uh, because i've never never been asked that question because that's 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 an interesting question um but that's what it is for me i don't know if that's you know i'm not saying that's right or wrong that's just how i see it yeah
0: i got you i got you um do you think that your perception of masculinity has changed like at all um like as you've
1: gotten older um i'm gonna say it changed in, in one particular way we were always taught and I don't know if this is just the black community or not, we we're always taught not to be emotional, not to cry, not to show emotion, all that stuff. Learning more about, you know, therapy and counseling and being yourself and being expressive. Oh, that's a good topic. Let me let me get into that a little bit. Being expressive as a man, there is <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. Like I think and I think that is I think that is one of the significant factors of why you know, like black men are going through some of the things that they're going through. There is no nothing wrong with being expressed. There's nothing wrong with showing feelings and emotions. So in a relationship, right, men want to seem to be, of course, the dominant one, the lion, whatever the case is. But sometimes your woman needs you to be like, okay, communicate with me, express what's going on, how are you feeling instead of holding things back. Because what happens when you hold all these emotions back, you let it out in different ways. It's not healthy now you you hitting all cylinders that your wife or your family does not want to see but because you don't want to like be emotional or complain quote unquote that's where you get into a lot of trouble so that also ties into masculinity like you can be expressive and still be a man in sense so i cry all the time i my first couple of speeches i used to cry in front of a lot of people like it is what it is, but they saw that genuine authentic side of me and I don't think there's nothing wrong with it. You can be a man, you can be a male, you can be masculine and still be expressive with your emotions. There's nothing wrong with it.
0: Exactly. I uh that was beautiful. I love that. I love that. Love that so much because like I feel like that's that's the switch that's changing for me. Um especially like after I went to college and different things like that and then like I said like I think Towards the end of college, that's when I started my journey with therapy and sort of figuring out what exactly like what I need to unpack and figure out. And I remember one of the first things I was talking to my therapist about was I was like, Yeah, I don't do this whole crying thing. So like let's not try that. And he and he kind of looked at me and he was like, It seems that you have like a defense mechanism up about a cry. And I was like, You don't know me. Like and so it like (laughs) it was like one of those things where like now I definitely try to be open and honest about my expression of emotion and like really feel what I'm feeling. And then also try to encourage other people to do that as well. Um, I'm curious to know your perception around, I feel like I've had this conversation. uh, I feel like when it comes to like black culture, like all elements of black culture, we sort of see um, especially like, I feel like over the last year um, from the sports arena to hip hop and different things like that, this like reinforcement of like sort of that, like, weird frame of talking masculinity of like no you don't cry or men don't do this or do different things like that i would love to know like what's your perspective on that is and do you think like there are elements of black culture that sort of like reinforce like this need to be like the strong never crying like man
1: um i think that comes from um uh, i think you can take that information or that history back to slavery honestly like the men were the, always the ones that go out and do the work. And the women were always the one in the house teaching the the quote-unquote slave masters kids how to read. Um, they were the ones that were, you know, they just usually be the ones that complain and be emotional and all that stuff. But the men had, there has to be that strong backbone for their family. You know, while they were dealing with all this, like all of this, I don't even know the word to describe it. I don't even want to take it away because for saying challenges, it was like whatever it is. I can't. think It was of... just like straight up trauma, like trauma. Yeah, trauma. Like oh, while they're doing so, think about it. Let's date this, the, this all the way back to slavery. If black men were enslaved and they had to every day do whatever their master told them to do, they had to hold in all their emotions because crying and being emotional wasn't going to help. Like you still got to do your work. So they were instilled in this in this trait and this characteristic that. Pfft, What's the point of crying? What's the point of complaining? What's the point of being emotional? You still gotta do the work. And I think that's where it starts from. So then then it changed a little bit to, okay, now in the black culture, if you cry and be emotional, you're weak. Like you're you're pathetic. Like that's and that's what's preaching the household. Like, especially in the older generations, if you if you cry and you show any kind of emotion, you're not a man. What where, where do we get that from? <laughs> but like I said, you can date that back to slavery and stuff like that. So I think that is what needs to be changed. Um, I've seen a lot uh, going into the mental health or the therapy or the counseling side of things. And even in counseling, like you don't see a lot of black men being counselors um, because they don't know how to uh, um, listen to emotions. They don't know how to be emotional themselves. They don't know how to relate and be empathetic. That's hard for people, for black men to do. So, you don't even see like me coming into the county. Like, man, you're a rare gem. You're a diamond. Like, what? And I had no idea. This, this, this <laughs> information. I'm like, what, what are y'all talking about? So, most people in this profession are women. And mm-hmm. if they're black, it's black women. But most of them are women or white males or anything like that. There's no, Black people don't even, and one of my jobs that I've been told, I guess it's been already told, like, you got to do this as a mental health counselor or whatever, is that you have to help the Black community understand mental health and counseling. Black people, especially Black men, will not go see a counselor. Like, it's just not happening. Oh, I'm not seeing a therapist. Oh, I'm not getting counsel. I don't need that. I don't need that. That stems from the church. Like, you know, growing up, your grandma, whatever the case may be. Oh, that's the devil. Go to church. Go to the pastor and talk to him about your problems. Listen, right? God created everybody Differently, like you have your pastor and you also have your mental health. You don't go see the pastor when you need something to be for uh, like for the medical professional. Like if you if you hurt and you bleed and you have scars and injuries and stuff, you go to the doctor. So you have to let the counselor do his thing. So that's the crazy. Right. Stuff. I've been told that so many times. You need to go into the black community and preach about mental health and going to see a counselor and stuff like that. But black men don't want to talk like we are so closed off. We don't want to talk. And you start asking them, like, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about different bad experiences that you felt. Tell me about how your living arrangement was when when you were growing up and stuff like that. They're like, it was cool. It was fun. But not knowing they locked this stuff in the box. like, And right. you don't even know that they're, like, going through something inside until so you have to unbox that information. That's what's so kind of interesting for me in the counseling world and, like, doing a session and helping people understand that there is way more to you than the surface level stuff. When people ask you how you're doing and people just respond, Oh, well, I'm okay. I'm good. And you don't even realize that you're not okay. <laughs>
0: like, right. Right. Doing, yeah.
1: And I'll be like, well, what did you do today? How do you feel? Like how, what was the last time you experienced And When was the last time you stopped smiling? You start asking specific questions. They're like, "Dang, wait, wait a minute. I'm not good. So it's just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That
0: yeah, no, like it, it, it's real deal. Like if you it, it hidden different sometimes, it's just like, oh, like maybe I'm not good. Um I, <laughs> It makes me think of like a uh there's a really good like comedy sketch on uh YouTube from a good uh he's an up-and-coming like black man, he's a comedian. Uh and I remember like one of the sessions he talks about like how he like struggles with depression and different things like that. And he was like, The reason I think that black men really struggle with depression is because we've we've given ourselves too many cool words to like undermine how we're feeling he's like instead of saying like oh yo no you know i have like a severe mental breakdown he was like one time his friend asked him if he was okay and he's like no i'm good i was just tripping (laughs) and i was like we really be doing this like it's wild um Obviously, knowing that you don't have like all the answers of the world um, before we take a, a quick break um, and we talk about grind city kicks, um, what do you think like is like, what do we like need to do like us as black men, but also like us as a community? Like, what do you feel like we need to do not only to get more black men to therapy, but to I think also like have these like more tangible conversations around like emotions and empathy and different things like that?
1: I think the start of the, the, the start of what we need to do is just be open. Simple as that. Be open. Be open-minded. Once you're open-minded and willing to hear, accept, acknowledge, and experience therapy and counseling, it'll take you in different directions that you never thought you would be taking in the first place. Um, Just be open. There's a lot of I'm not, I, I, and I don't want to feel like I'm bashing black men at all. Like, I'm not. Um, it's because it's other races that's like that, too. Um, male, males in general as well. But for the most part, we're not open. Like we, we're we so closed off in what we know and what we experience and what we're comfortable with that we're not open. If, if we have a whole community of black people saying therapy is weak, therapy is soft, why are you going to the counselor and all that stuff? People are going to listen and they're going to run with it because this has been preached Years and years, generations after generations. So being open to, okay, boom. And another thing is people will not... I did a whole speech about this. There's a lot of Black celebrities that people look up to, whether it's sports, hip-hop, or comed- comedians or actors, or whatever the case is. Um, right. They dealt with mental health issues. And those people, those people that are these people, that some of these people idolize need to come out and say that like i went to a counselor i went to see a therapist i dealt with this and when that happens when that happens people of our generation and younger will be like oh he went okay that means it must be cool because people don't realize how much power and status these people have so yeah
0: right no that definitely makes sense and like it's weird how much like things like have to be like Become popular, or like someone like with a lot of status, has to do something like I. I could only imagine like how many like black men would just if Drake was like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna go to therapy, or like I went to therapy that day, and they'd be like, sign me up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be there. Um, and so it's just, it's just really wild. Um, so I I appreciate I appreciate that perspective. Um, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come back with Chima and talk a little bit about your your ride as a as a as a speaker, like out here giving these speeches and then talk a little bit about grants and kids. The topic of the hour, I feel like, Grind City Kicks. <laughs> let's let's explore it a little bit. Tell me, let's start with, like, where did the idea come from? Like, t- talk me through the journey of the birth of Grind City Kicks.
1: Okay. So, um, love it. GCK, again, didn't know I was going to be a part of this um, years ago. But I'm glad I'm a part of it and was crazy. Oh, I I got some funny stories. So let's talk about the beginning. So first of all, if people don't know, I'm not the founder of Grind City Kicks. I am not the original founder of Grind City Kicks. I was in the beginning of the initial stage of building the the brand and the business, but I was not like the idea did not come from me. I actually wanted the name to be called Affordable Kicks. Um, I'm glad. Well, I mean, I don't, you know.
0: <laughs> I was like, not as catchy, but you
1: know, I see where you're going. Yeah, yeah it was, a, it wanted it to be called Affordable Kicks and the founder was like, no, we're not doing that. If you wanted to be called that, you can start your own. Um, But initially, when the idea was brought to me, because it, it was, came to me, it came to me as a second stream of income. We're going to just resell shoes, buy shoes, and resell them for more money. And for me, I was like, man, this is the city of Memphis. People do that all the time. There's too many competitions with that. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Um, so I went to this entrepreneur event and heard this entrepreneur talk, and he was like, if you do anything in life, make sure you do something that aligns with your purpose. Make sure you do something that you know that you believe in, that's something that resembles you and stuff like that. So then I went back to the founder of my ex business partner. And I said, okay, cool. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's do grind city cakes, but. Let's just not resell shoes. Let's impact the community. Um, let's do it differently than everybody else. So, boom, we we um we did Grind City Kid. We started doing Grind of the Month where we give a shoe to a child every month for the excellence that they do in education or in the community and stuff like that. We started doing things in the community where people that lost loved ones to tragedies would give a, their favorite shoe, their son or daughter or whatever favorite shoe in remembrance of them. We started doing different community events and stuff like that. And it was all tied into shoes. Um and then, you know, my my the founder, my ex-business partner, he was like, All right, I wanna rebrand. I wanna change Grind City Kicks to Grind City Vintage. I wanna start selling vintage clothing. And I looked at him and I was like, No, I don't think that doesn't shoes is more like, you know, it's- <laughs> He could do a lot more with shoes than vintage clothing. And when he was, he gave me two options. He literally said, "Either you can follow me with Grind City Vintage, or you can buy me out." And of course, Grind City Case is still here, so I bought him out. Um, I started, you know, moving differently in terms of like doing, having more opportunities. So, one of the biggest things that we did in 2019 was the American Cancer Society with Breast Cancer Month, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We partnered with American Cancer Society. Real man Wear Pink, Championship Wrestling, did a commercial with CW30, and brought this uh, uh, Jordan 11 pink snakeskin shoe, and we auctioned it off to be donated to um, Breast Cancer winners. So what we did at first, we took it to eBay, and it went off of eBay. Then the guy was, oof, was crazy. The guy that bought the shoe off of eBay knew me. I actually worked with the guy, and he was like, can you donate it back? Don't tell anybody that I bought the shoe, but can you donate it back and get some more money to win for breast cancer awareness? So we got the shoe back after getting his his side of the money, and we took it to Tunica. Now, for anybody that doesn't know that's not from the area, Tunica is our nearest casino. It's our biggest casino near Memphis. So we took it to Tunica, and we had a, a bigger auction over there. And, um, oh, before I forget, the shoe was signed by John Morant and Jaren Jackson, which is the players of the Grizzlies. I'm sure people know John Morant now. And at this point, John Morant was like he was first, you know, coming onto the scene and stuff like that. So he was signed by John Morant, Jaren Jackson Jr., and we took the tunica. The shoe went over two, almost two thousand dollars. Gave it to breast cancer awareness, and that was that was huge. And I was like, okay, starting to do some things. So then um, I was like, okay, I you know I still feel like grind city kicks needs a little bit more. Um, we're not. I feel like we're still not there yet i still feel like people are confusing us with a boutique or a t-shirt selling brand and i was like no right right (laughs) so then that's when i was like cool let's get into sports and i started doing stuff with sports um we have a rugby team soccer team and two basketball organizations and we're supposed to start um this is how it actually happened we're we're supposed to start the first alternative school basketball program in memphis Before COVID hit, that was going to be like, because no one has done sports for alternative kids. Like, it's, it's just unheard of. That was supposed to be the thing. So I was like, man, I can't believe COVID hit. They can't play basketball, whatever. So then I used that same idea, same energy to just get into sports and start having sports organizations that I partner with, providing them with apparel and stuff like that, Hel- using those players to get community hours in the community, do community events and stuff like that. So um, that happened. And then of course, I've always said, since I took over Grindskill, to I have to have my own shoe. So thankfully, no one has heard. Yesterday was our first shoe came out. First official shoe designed from scratch. Partnership with Soul Give organization. Um, Black Lives Matter shoe. The pre-orders are now in for $113. The significance of that number is the date of Rihanna Taylor that got killed on three thirteen of 2020. And those pre-orders were run to four twelve. Um, 2021. If anybody doesn't know that date, that's when Freddie Gray got brutally injured by the six officers and then later died on April 19th. And then later on, those shoes will be officially released on May 25th, 2021, which is the day George Floyd was killed. So, that's just a little summary. I know you probably have questions about Grind City Kicks that I can answer, but that's a little summary of GCK, so
0: yeah. Wow, that that's amazing though like that to take something like because also i can say this as someone who's like from memphis like my uncle uncle cousins used to do the same thing buy shoes sell them for like higher prices and stuff like that and so to do that at the level that you're doing it at is like so 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 impressive um I'm curious, what made you, as far as like why why stick with shoes? Why did you feel like, even though you're not the original like founder of of GCK, like why what what's the significance of like shoes? I feel like shoe culture is something that very few people
1: understand. So that is a great question. I always tell people I ask this is the first thing I ask when people ask me that question. I said so after you look at somebody's face, if they're walking towards you or they're far away. The second thing you look at is their shoes. It's It's subconsciously. You go right down to their shoes. And the shoes tell everything about a person. It tells whether you're walking the dog that day or whether you're going to um, give a Fortune $500 speech or whatever. Um, It tells whether you're going to play basketball or it tells whether you're, um, I don't know, going for a walk in the park. Your shoes are literally the identity of... um, Yourself, honestly. So. (laughs) One time I heard this story about somebody can have a, a nice suit going to an interview, but when you look at their shoes and it's beat up, you can tell that that suit they probably got from a donation uh, Goodwill, which nothing wrong with thrifting Before um, all the thrifters come after me, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but your shoes, like you, you can't press your shoes. It's a conversation start. So for me, why I stick with shoes is I wear a pair of sneakers, go wherever, basketball court, wherever I'm going. And people will look out, don't, don't even know me. Don't even know my name, anything. Point at my shoes, look at my shoes like, Oh, you got these, you got those, you got this. And then right then from there we have a conversation. So now you know my name is Chima. Now you know I work with grind city kicks. Now you know all this stuff, all based off just the shoes that I'm wearing. So I was, I I thought about it, especially in the city I'm in. People love shoes. I said, can't take away shoes. And then people, let's just let's just say for what it is, people spend their last paycheck on shoes. So I, I said, this That's is a, true. This, this is an audience. This is a this is a target audience that I can't get away from. Like, clothes, um, whatever, whatever the other products are, shoes will always be one of the things that, you know, has its own length. Last, the last time I checked, shoes was like a $24 billion, uh, industry, like just to resell shoes, the reselling of shoes, like $24 billion. And that was like two years ago when I checked it. Sure is up now, but yeah.
0: Wow. That one, I didn't know that. So that's pretty dope. Um to know that but like when I think about it I, I think about like how impactful shoe culture like really is because like especially like us, I think for us in the community like your shoes say a lot about you and your knowledge of shoes uh I remember like my roommate while I was in Florida like Big shoe head, like I remember. Like one of the first things I remember is like when he was setting up his room, like when we were moving in. It's like he had boxes and boxes. He, like he had the Jordans and he had the Nikes, and I was like, "Oh, okay, so that's how we doing it out here." And he was like, "That's what I'm all about." Um, I'm not as much of a shoe connoisseur as uh, he is, or most people. I feel like I fall really behind in shoe culture, but I, I,
1: I appreciate, I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, um, but you don't have to be. Um, like, like I said, it's, it's first of all, people. Listen, I just I sold a shoe over a thousand dollars before, one pair of shoes. And but I was looking at it at the eyes like why in the world would somebody buy shoes for a thousand plus dollars? Like but that is just what people like. Like some people like cars, some people like um watches, but other people like shoes and I said, Hey, that's the that's what you like to do. So you don't have to be a connoisseur or anything like that, but just understanding I guess is I guess that's that's good enough,
0: right? I know you have your own shoe now, but I'm curious: is there like a do you have like a a favorite like favorite shoe
1: that comes to mind? Like, what's your my favorite? Own my own shoe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, have oh. you asked me this two weeks ago? I probably would have told you something else, but definitely this is. I've always listen. I tell my girlfriend this all the time. Ownership is always the the route to go when you can, when you can have your own thing when you can say that this is yours when you can, I mean, granted I love Jordans I've wearing since I I can afford Jordans I've always worn Jordans uh, in terms of tennis shoes, Um, but at the same time I'm wearing somebody else's name, like just let's say for what it is that's somebody else's name I'm he's making money off of me he's profiting and nothing wrong with that it's a business I mean we buying brands all the time i have a jeep i have a toyota like that's somebody else's brand but at the same time when you can have your own it's a, it's a different ball game and uh to go back to answer your question that is my favorite shoe and it probably will always be my favorite because it's the first if i make another one it's still gonna be my favorite one and then you gotta think about it it's not just because it's mine it's what it represents um black lives matter of course is what happened last year and uh, all that was going on. And just in the year of 2020, oh, my God, like, <laughs> it's was tough. Um, so what it right. represents, the awareness that it's bringing um, to the Black culture and then the proceeds going to HBCUs, I mean, think about it. We we discussed this. I, don't even, I can't even say this over the air. But let me just say this. There is no other shoot that you can point to that is literally a Black Lives Matter shoot. Let me just say that for the record. Like, there's no other shoe that you can, now there's shoes that they can say, okay, this is the story behind why we created this, but there's never, there's not a shoe called Black Lives Matter shoe, so
0: it's dope. All right, that that's that's dope. Um, for the people listening, I'm gonna definitely make sure that I include Grind City Kicks' the website link as well as the link to being able to purchase a Chima shoe in the show notes. Um, make sure you show some support. Support. You show some love. Um, also, I've seen it. It's a pretty dope shoe. So, like, come on, come out, come out your wallets if you can afford to, people. Um, but hey, no, that's what, pretty dope.
1: I, mean, I think what's the average? How much do you spend on shoes? Let's let's get let's get into that. How much do you do you usually spend? Oh, shoes? oh man, <laughs> um, like some just tennis on, shoes.
0: Okay, just tennis shoes. Okay, so I'm a very big Nike running shoe person. Uh, so on average, I always like I'm my mother's child, as I put it all the time. So I'm always looking for that sale, that discount. <laughs> um, but on average, I you not anywhere from one ninety five or like not $195 uh $95 all the way up to I think like 150 is what I've the most I've spent. One time I almost spent $200, <laughs> but um I managed to get them for like a much lower price. When I was younger uh cuz my dad used to work at Foot Locker and he had like the the network and the hookup and stuff like that. I probably got shoes for much cheaper than <laughs> than you would have paid for them. Um but yeah, on average I think if it's like a really really nice shoe or it's a pair of shoes especially now i feel like when i'm in a time in my life where i like actually have like money um which is both a blessing and a fortune um and a privilege as well um i'm willing to spend a little more like right now i think the other day like i was looking at some shoes for my girlfriend as well as for myself um cause she's like starting to get into the tennis shoe culture, but that's not really like her thing. Um, and I think to buy both pairs, it was going to be like two, like two, a little bit over two hundred, two ninety-five 295 or whatever. Um, and I was like, I mean, I can afford to buy them. Like I could, I could do it if I wanted to, like, um, I'm not going to do it right now, but, uh, but like, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so the reason why I asked is, um, the shoe is 113. And for the most part, I'm not even talking about like the the bigger brands in terms of Jordans and, you know, these exclusive Nike pairs of shoes. One thirteen, I mean, that's like that's on the low end if you think about it. For adults. Right. Like adult shoe. That's on the low end. So I was like, you know, I'm not trying to quote unquote I don't know if people know this this terminology, bust people's head, which is, you know, <laughs> I, don't know. I had to do a little memphis slavery, but if people don't know what that means is um overprice a product for what it needs to be. Um, it literally has a significance of why is one thirteen it's the death of Breonna Taylor's um date. And that's one thirteen thirteen's not a bad is not a bad uh price for a Black Lives Matter shoot, So you
0: know. You're right, you're right. People come out, support, it means a lot, it does a lot of things. Um before I get you out of here, Chima, I definitely um I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, just because I haven't asked about it previously, and I'm, I'm actually not super versed in it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, Grind City Cares and, and oh.
1: what that, yeah. <laughs> so, my uh, last podcast that I talked about, I, listen, nonprofit is a different world. Business is a different I believe world. It. Nonprofit is a different world. I'm still learning. Um, I talked about my last podcast. I said, listen, don't ask me about, you know, the as a non because I'm still learning every day and um, I have board members and everything. I still haven't had my first meeting. Of course, COVID hit right when my non-profit started. I've done, I have, okay, so the biggest thing I've done with my non-profit was during the COVID, we created this shirt that people can buy that the half of the proceeds will go to families and victims of COVID-19. Um, we had this whole campaign that started from, I don't know if this, you've heard of this campaign. It's called, um, giving it's called giving now or Giving Tuesday now, which started in COVID or when COVID hit, I think it started in May. I can't remember the date right now, but it's where all these nonprofit organizations, um, um, ask for support from businesses and different individuals to donate for COVID. So when we started that, we ran it all the way the whole summer. And it was just T-shirts, and I was, like, and people asking me why, you know, why T-shirts? Because think about it. I don't care if you wear suits all the time. I don't care if you wear sweaters. I don't care what you wear. Everybody owns a T-shirt. Period. I, I, I mean, e- even if you don't like T-shirts, you own a T-shirt. So I was like, it's the cheapest, one of the cheapest, and the easiest way to support, and to always have that support uh, on your chest. I was like, let's make a COVID nineteen T-shirt. So, made a T-shirt for twenty dollars. At least the short sleeves were twenty dollars and sold it. Sold it out the whole summer. And then we we um we did a check presentation for one of our I don't know if you're familiar with the neighborhood Christian Center. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. We gave it to them for them to, for the work they've been doing during the COVID and to continue to do more work with those families and stuff like that. So I've done things with that with terms of nonprofit, but I'm still learning that game. I'm still still learning the business side of things, but I'm still learning trying to learn nonprofit and work together and stuff like that so but yeah i got you the reason why the reason why i even started non-profit in the beginning is um if you i didn't have okay so grinds Cases case is a business right but it's a it's a community business so where we still do stuff in the community and still impact different communities and different individuals but i wasn't gaining support in terms of having that grant funding getting that resources Getting all that stuff to provide for the community—it was all. If people don't know this. It's all Grind City Kids. I've gotten questions before. You a nonprofit? Do you have some kind of like capital, capitalistic world where people are providing money? Do you have an investor? I said no. This is all GCK's money. Like this is all the money I worked, I had before, and this is all of the money that Grind City Kids has acquired, and we're using all that to provide to do all this philanthropy work. But I, always, I was looking left and I was looking right, and I was like. These other people are doing way more work with the resources they're getting, and because they're a nonprofit they are you know doing a lot of more a lot more work in the community. so I said, okay well let me let me start a nonprofit um, let me do it from GCK so I called it grindsip cares made it easy um, just like if people don't know FedEx cares has one, Amazon smiles, Ronald McDonald house like if you if you really look closely, everybody has a nonprofit business not every. But most businesses have a nonprofit attached to them. So I use Grind City Cares to do the more philanthropy side and the give back side of things where Grind City Cares can, I mean, Grind City Cakes can focus solely on the business. And just a little bit, Grind City Cakes is still going to do stuff in the community, but not as much as a nonprofit one. So that's how I got started. But I'm still learning. Right.
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate all the insight and just like, you just really out here doing it. And so, especially for a city like Memphis that needs more entrepreneurs and different things like that. So kudos and props to you, my brother. Um, Before we sign off for the episode, I like to end every podcast episode with kind of just like what's in your queue sort of a segment. So, books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, music, anything that you want to plug that you're currently listening to or you got in the docket. This is your sort of your opportunity to just let people know about
1: it. Um for me, I'm a very visual learner. I I, I learn through Google and YouTube. Um if I'm not I let me give you a little spill of my daily my daily uh, I guess my daily life. So, YouTube, I usually listen to speakers um, motivational speakers. Um, or I study business business uh men or women, CEOs and businesses and stuff, how they started where they i I've studied the shoe business back and forth from FUBU to Adidas to Puma to Nike to um to uh K Swiss to I mean everything <laughs> you can think of. No, seriously, but think about it. Like I'm I'm gonna give uh your podcast a little gem real quick if you just study the ones that have worked successfully, you're only going to be at least 50% of what you need to know. You have to study the ones that like, I even study starter as well. You have to study the ones that are, that we consider that didn't work or as not as popular because we, I want to make sure I'm not, you know, repeating the same things they're doing. Um, I mean, there's so many shoes that I've studied, and I was like, okay, that's that's why this happened, or that's why Nike's where it's at, and this other shoe's not where it's at. Um, let's see, music. I'm I'm big. Uh, my favorite genre, everybody knows, is old school R&B, but I also keep up with hip-hop and stuff like that. Um, Lil Baby's doing his thing. One thing I can say, one thing like I can say, I thought Lil Baby was gonna be a one hit wonder. I do not not even joking with you, but this this guy is doing his thing. Um, Drake, of course, says. I tell people all the time, Drake is like the most consistent artist in our generation. Like, hate on him if you want to. He is consistent. He we have this quote that my friends always say, he never misses. <laughs> he he that, doesn't. Miss.
0: I'll give him that. That is true. He,
1: he, he doesn't miss. He he and he's. If we had to take what Drake does in the business sense, he always adapts to what's going on. Drake is not a dancer, but he would dance. Tussi Slide, um, whatever, what's the one that he had the uh the dance he did with the phone call? Can't remember the name sorry. Oh
0: yeah, the uh what was the hotline playing thing? Yeah, yeah. Hotline,
1: like he knows how to he's done the dance hall uh soundtracks and all that stuff. He's know how to adapt for what that's why he's been relevant for so long. So, um, there's a lot of artists that, I mean, I listen to, I mean, Kevin Gates, I listen to all type of people. I don't have no particular, I don't have a favorite artist. My last favorite artist was Lil Wayne. Um, ever since he, he fell off a little bit, I don't really have a favorite artist. Drake is more my, more consistent artist, if you can say, but I don't have a favorite artist. I just listen to all, I just listen to great music. I'll tell people that all the time. Even if it's a country song, if it's a great country song, I'm gonna listen to it. Right, um, right. What else? What you said Music videos uh that's really it i don't do too much i like to chill when i can besides doing all this other work i like to just relax watch tv for oh one thing that this is this is a you know exclusive information one thing people don't really know about me i watch a lot of police shows from criminal minds to chicago pd to fbi if oh, okay. i the mental spectrum of things I would definitely want to become a detective. The only reason I didn't do it is because of the safety issues and stuff like that. But I, right. I'm i a detective at heart. I like to, I love mystery stories, mystery movies and stuff like that. Um, I watch all that stuff because I, I always try to see if I can get to know what's going to happen next or if I can figure out a, a mystery or something like that.
0: Right. I love that. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I feel the same way. I love a good mystery as well all right good sir i appreciate you just sitting down with me i appreciate it not only getting to catch up but also like hear a lot about your journey and what you've like brought forward so love love having you on and anytime you want to come back on the show or you want to like want me to pub something just let me know uh because we we got you out here because you're you're doing great work and you're serving the community and you're living out your purpose so i Can't do none but support.
1: (laughs) I appreciate you for having me. I'm very grateful.
0: People, welcome to the outro, I just wanted to say thank you again for listening to today's episode. A great conversation between me and Chima and I hope somebody really took, took away something from it. Um, really quickly before I do my pubs, I really wanted to say if you are enjoyed the podcast, you like it so far, um, please, please Like, subscribe, uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as all the other platforms that you can listen on. That's how I can keep making so many great episodes, keep pumping it, it will show up more often for other people, and you can keep sharing, so please make sure that you do that. Um, And then finally, just still based uh, on the episode that was so centered on that conversation of mental health and um, mental just caring for yourself in all the ways possible, um, once again, I just wanted to make sure I pub like two really great opportunities for therapy because I think therapy is incredibly important and it's necessary um, in whatever form that it needs to look. Again, pubbing Ayana, which is A Y A in a i know i spelled it wrong last time when i (laughs) put it on the soundbite um again it'll be linked in the show notes but ayana therapy for all of my black and poc folks um emphasizing and then another one i wanted to really publicize is the uh, asian mental health collective and so they are a group of educators, researchers, as well as therapists, Um, they provide a directory specifically for um, APETA therapy in terms of like, you're looking for a therapist that has those specific identities within the Asian American community. Um, And so especially right now in terms of reaching out to someone who culturally understands and uh, like that has that extra cultural competency is very, very important, Um, but it also provides a means of education and understanding. And so making sure that I definitely pub that, pub those websites um, and you get out there and use them please please take care of yourself take care of your mental health and take care of everyone around you as well um we can only do this together and we can only do this in solidarity so thanks again for tuning in make sure you subscribe make sure you rate uh the podcast and it- Let us know on all of our social media platforms, uh, on Instagram, maskoff21, as well as on Twitter, maskoff31, and let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, topics that you want to hear about, um, and looking forward to bringing you even more excellent content. Y'all have a great day.